1: is an outrage broadcasting outrage. live outrage.
0: from the kvec studios in san luis obispo what
1: economy are you talking about it's about. time
0: for about. mortgage matters
2: hey all right good morning everyone welcome to the show I just kind of like this dig
3: in this new funky kind of beat we got going on here. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it even beats even more. Just let it roll.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty hard-rocking.
3: I know. Because we're a hard-rocking show around here.
2: Can be. Yeah,
3: we can be. That's what it is.
2: Our show's broader than one genre. Yeah. We're not just rock.
3: No. Well, we go all the way from uh, how long Frank. Is that thing? Really, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but but now we go all the way from Frank Sinatra to you know Kid Rock. That's how broad we are. It
2: feels like that's right. Two ends of the spectrum. That's right. Well,
3: we might or even get to the wrap. I would a little
2: go. Bit. Yeah, I was gonna say if I was gonna give you the spectrum, I'd want to go like. I'll take your Frank Sinatra. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Farther other end of the spectrum. How about like Wu-Tang Clan? Yeah, there you go. That's pretty different Yeah, Frank is, Sinatra.
3: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I think we got, we cover the gamut. We yeah. go everywhere.
2: Dan listens to stuff like Wu-Tang Clan.
3: Yeah.
4: I have an eclectic music taste.
2: That's awesome. I was thinking yeah. about you this week on Wednesday night. I saw that not sold out was the E-40 show at the yeah. Fremont Theater. Yeah. And I thought, man, Dan would like that if if we were younger again without all these kids and stuff.
4: Mm-hmm. I've got a little E-40 in my library.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I That'll love that. Bring us back from a break
3: with some Wu-Tang Clan. If there's anything I can, a good yeah. Idea. I don't think there's anything I can play. No, don't but.
2: Uh, <laughs> I'll give you some ideas. Don't let yeah. the lyrics start. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, well, welcome, everybody. It's May 20th. We got another live show, another couple hours here. Um, kind of a, another interesting week. Been having, uh, oh, plenty of. All the political talks still, and this week looks like it led to. I uh, most of the averages closed down this week. The Dow's down a little bit. I mean, uh, Friday it seemed like trying to recover a little bit, but we've now, man, volatility is the is the new norm now, right? The volatility is back. the The ten year bond yield closed out on uh, on Friday at two point two four which I thought was a low level that was gone. Um, a couple weeks ago, we were we got to the 2.2s, and then we, oh, that lost energy, ran out of steam. We quickly found ourselves heading back to the 2.4 range, um, and now this week heading back to the low 2.2 range again. So volatility is the name of the game today. Um, I I wonder how long that's going to go on for. Volatility in the stock market, too. Was it Monday or Tuesday? I want to say Tuesday was the big. The Dow was down like 300-plus points in a session. The worst day of 2017 so far. Kind of wild.
4: Yeah. It could be because it was a light. A light week as far as economic news goes, but then a heavier week for, let's call it extracurricular stuff, <laughs> 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 political in nature, you know, a lot of turmoil in the White House and controversy and that, uh, you know, it's something we talk about a lot, but that uncertainty of the future and what the future landscape's going to look like. It, I feel
2: like we're having more trouble this time... Um, shifting from election gear where let's fight and divide and say you're so stupid and everybody looks at each other and says you're so stupid but then generally i feel like after the election okay you know this is what we got make the best of it this time we haven't we haven't seemed to get done with the the um you know you're right you're wrong kind of division and we're just seeing that just keep going um, and so the markets, I believe, are reacting to that. I, I really yeah, do.
4: It seemed like it. there wasn't much else to focus on. So lingering controversies, I think, dominated the the markets and, and what they were reacting to.
2: Yesterday, there was a little bit of talk. A couple of the Fed members were out talking um, and we got there's. Maybe a little bit there. Um, You know, we're starting to understand the probability of a June rate hike is now fallen. uh, You might even say significantly. Two weeks ago, the likelihood of a June rate hike was listed at greater than 90%. Yesterday, um, finished up um, just over 50%. Hmm. So, um, and best I could tell, it sounds like uh, weak retail sales. Consumer price reports coming in a little bit lower than expected, that kind of agonizing inflation number where you wonder, can this economy bear um, two more interest rate increases this year, given the data? Um, and again, going back, it's been a couple weeks now, but we learned that April jobs were pretty strong. So... Um, you know, maybe a mixed bag if you want to call it that. But um, so, anyways, we're we're learning now a little bit that um, things the Feds are are hinting at or beginning to suggest that maybe the possibility of the rate harks. Uh, rate hikes are diminishing a little bit. And then additionally, I know it's not popular banter for, uh, you're not going to hear about a lot of this on network news, but the Fed is also learning, um, discussing and trying to figure out now uh, more about how they're going to get out of the huge balance sheet of MBS that they have. Um, it sits at about $4.5 trillion right now. They're still buying um, $1 to $2 billion a week worth of mortgage-backed securities that are just reinvestment funds. So they're not allocating any new money to it, but every time some mortgage-backed security pays off and the treasury's in receipt of that money, they're utilizing that to buy new MBS. So at some point when they stop buying those mortgage-backed securities, does that mean that the, this isn't the exact term, but you know you got direct and indirect bidders or non-direct. Is it indirect? Indirect. Um if the Fed's acting as a real direct bidder, they're kind of mandatorily reinvesting that $2 billion a week. When they stop, will the indirect buyers of mortgage-backed securities accept and, and kind of demand the same yields or where they want more um, – you know, that lack of competition in there maybe might lead to higher interest rates. So there's a little bit of fear in that. And I think that also spurs on some of the volatility. It's just sort of wondering what happens when they not only stop buying, but then also if and when they decide to start selling part of the four and a half trillion portfolio they're sitting on.
4: At the same time, the two billion a week is that what you said a week?
2: It's one to two billion a week.
4: It's not a huge amount given no. the size of the mortgage market. No. So, I mean, originations this year are expected to be around $1.5 trillion. So what's that, $180 billion a month? So, you know, if you're talking 4 to $8 billion that the Fed is buying, I mean, that's not a huge slice of the pie.
2: It's not enough. No, you're right. It's not enough. And one of the interesting things, too, though, think about that $4.5 trillion the Fed's sitting on. These are largely loans that are, like, in the low threes. So the fact that some of these are paying off, and, and why are they paying off? They pay off because people refinance. They pay off because people sell homes. And so when any of those loans pay off, what they're doing is just using the payoffs to buy new mortgage-backed securities. It means they're slowly working. Some of that $4.5 trillion is coming up to new market rate, too, right? Because sure. new MBS stuff is going out at like 4%. So, um, anyway, I know it's, it's probably not enough to really move the needle, but when you're looking at that, there's a lot of, um, speculation as to, you know, when they do decide to start selling that stuff off, let alone stop reinvesting, um, what happens to the mortgage backed securities market. And I think, you know, if there's anything to be concerned about, if you're, if you're creating a list, um, of things to be concerned about right now, Um, there's something to just throw on there. We don't know how big of a worry it is, but it's just something on the radar. So that's, I think, contributing a little bit to the tug of war of rates too, you know? So it's just, those are the things I think that's causing some of the volatility and we'll see what's going on. Um, You know, additionally, some of the other things that I think are, kind of have the market thinking weird thoughts. Um, The National Association of Realtors um, published a white paper uh, recently here that's talking about some of the tax code changes that are um, proposed. proposed, and um, basically looking at uh, one of the the things that they really drill down on is that um, if homeowners lose the tax incentives of owning a home, the way that that might impact home ownership, the way that that might impact equity. Um, they went into sight in their paper that uh, 80 to 90% of U.S. federal income tax is paid by homeowners. So this is already a pretty significant portion of the taxpayers is the homeowners. And if you remove that incentive for them to own those homes, you're basically furthering the burden of the people that are doing the heavy lifting for the our federal income tax but also giving them some cause to be maybe less interested in owning a home. I mean, I read the whole thing, and I thought, I get what you're saying there. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of, I guess, because we know that our housing economy at least knows that these tax breaks, um, the tax benefits of owning real estate are part of the economy. Um, I wouldn't want to shake that up too much. Yeah, right. That's what I'm thinking. But at the same <laughs> time, I look at it going forward, and I say, hey, owning a home, sure, it's an investment for me. But, you know, it's an investment for all of us. Um, it's also a pretty significant liability. Um, it also happens to be one of the nest eggs that we look most forward to. So we kind of sp- we spend um, forced or otherwise, you spend 30 years of really deliberate investing on on getting this. Um, assets secured for your retirement era Um, and then additionally owning your home is your um, it's your place for your it's your own little piece of private space for your friends and family and memories and all these things it's more than just the tax benefit so I don't know that it is probably as impactful as these guys are making it out to be But um, at the same time, I don't really know. It's another one of those things that I think again can lend itself to a little bit of volatility.
4: You know what else housing is? It's a huge job creator. Oh yes. And putting any of that job creation at risk, I think, is a not a wise move. And and I think that would be a big reason why. Scrolling up to the top of
2: my page here, housing share of GDP. Actually, was a data clip that came oh. out this last week. Interesting that you said are that.
4: You, are you just going to shoot me down right
3: here?
2: No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, significant. Um, housing share of the GDP came in at 15.6%. So this is fourth quarter 16. Wow. Um, but, yeah, it makes up a pretty significant part of it. 3 um, to 5% of that is construction of new uh, single-family, multifamily construction Um remodeling, production of manufactured home, broker fees, but then consumption spending on housing services makes up 12 to 13% of GDP. When you go back, like think back to the beginning of this recession, I talked about this a lot then because... You know, my dad's a builder. My father-in-law's a builder. I grew up with everybody in our sphere of influence was all tradesmen, you know. Oh, this guy. Yeah, he's the dude that owns the grading company. So they, you know, they push dirt around the lot and trench for utilities and do these kind of things. That guy's a roofer. That guy's a plumber. These were all the people that were at our family barbecues growing up. Those guys were all cut off at the knees in the recession when people stopped building. But then, additionally, as real estate plummeted, they stopped investing, they stopped remodeling. You know, a lot of these guys I mean, some of my friends that had really successful businesses went on to, you know, take big pay cuts to get the jobs they could working at the gas company, working at, you know, working for the city and public works, trying all these different things. To kind of scramble and survive, it was really telling how many people depended directly on the real estate market for their livelihood.
4: I was just about to say that 15% sounds like it's a very direct correlation to housing. Yes. Whereas then we have the whole 70% of consumer spending, which... Arguably, how much of that is like, you know, buying furniture, window blinds, yeah, buying stuff that goes into your house,
2: yeah, the cute little G that my wife puts up on the mantle, you know, (laughs) all those things that go on with decorating the home, right? But those are so, yeah, it's the decorations, but also then it's the other things too. Um, you know, I have to have a lawnmower and I have to have a weed whacker, I have all these things that I've taken care of because I'm the homeowner, you know what I mean. So it, it is a significant part of GDP, and I I do I wonder um, if the I hope actually that NAR um, is able to continue to lobby for that and hope that they can keep the mortgage interest interest deduction in place just to not I don't know you know and I don't know maybe not maybe you could make the other half of this argument somebody probably can housing's a um, a wealth creator, right? We learned that if you own a home, you know, over 20, 30, 40 years compared to the person that doesn't, assets at that point later in life are radically different between the two, you know? Yeah, definitely. So... I don't know. Maybe that person that's accumulating all that wealth doesn't deserve those breaks along the way. But that's where you got to go back to, I think, and the reason I clipped it, one of the best points they made was that 80 to 90% of um, federal income tax is paid by homeowners. These are the people that are contributing. And you have it sort of these loose rules and parameters as to what keeps it all together um, is at least part of it. Maybe if only psychologically. Right. I was talking with a guy yesterday. I was pre-qualifying this young couple that's buying their first home, and we started talking about Prop 13 again, and how Prop 13's a funny one. You can get you can get emotional about that quick, depending on where you are. If you're the guy that's enjoying a 30 year old tax base, or <laughs> the new homeowner that's buying a house, sandwiched in between two people that are enjoying the 30 year old tax base, and you know, it's like telling them well like because i was at the marsh office right so i'm like think about san luis drive right here some of these houses they've been owned forever for 40 years yeah tax base is going to be like three thousand dollars a year now you plunk down right next to them and buy a 1.1 million dollar house. Your taxes aren't going to be three grand a year. They're going to be about a thousand bucks a month, fifteen thousand dollars a year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. So how's that feel? You know, and it's like, well, not good. Well, the good news is, is that you know after. Two, three, five, ten years. The longer you own your home, the more of that benefit you begin to realize. And now you'll be part of uh, the mob that wants to protect Prop 13 at any cost. If you're somebody that hasn't been enjoying an old tax base, then you want to you wanna see that change right away.
3: <laughs>
2: kind of funny. Let's do a break. You want to do a break, Jim? I can't see you, though. Did I'll Dan, move with the monitor. Yeah, Dan, Dan gave me some
3: uh, gave me a reference
2: here to a Wu Tang song.
3: That's, <laughs> yeah,
4: did you, did you preview that? <laughs> I have
3: not previewed it, so. I'm going to preview it. If we come back with something other than Wu-Tang, it's like, yeah. It's we because we it failed quality control. We <laughs> cannot use it. Yes. Right. yes, yes.
2: I can't wait. Yeah. I need to know what this is now. Yeah. All right. We're going to do a quick break here. We'll be back in just a minute with more Mortgage Matters.
0: To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors.
2: Hi, this is Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. Too often, potential homebuyers disqualify themselves believing they need perfect credit. The fact is, we can finance home buyers with low credit scores, collections, bankruptcy, foreclosure, or short sale. Before you meet
1: with a realtor, step one is to get pre-approved. Just call Central Coast Lending is an equal housing lender. California BRA number 018-39608. TBO number 6054783. MLS number 328-358. Where the mortgage? Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. all right
3: yeah i'm not sure about this second guy so we're going to uh we're going to fade, fade it, it out.
2: go ahead i think we made it right there let's do it yeah 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 that's nice good pick there it is uh and after the next break then i guess just to to make the point you bring us back some sinatra huh <laughs> we'll, we'll go into frank Some old blue eyes for everyone. Safer, safer radio player Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, I I'd venture to guess you could throw on all every song Sinatra ever did in a row and just let it run, and you can just walk out and not have to worry for a second.
1: Probably.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it might be suggestive in some way, but they don't. They keep it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think it's even really suggestive with Frank. Right. Uh,
2: yeah, so... There you go. There we go. Wu-Tang, right <laughs> here on Mortgage Matters. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> did, yeah, we this ever, did we ever decide what our followers are called? Data heads? Uh, uh, mortgage heads? Yeah, I don't
3: know. Well, you gotta figure something out. Yeah. I mean, maybe that we a,
2: might be mortar heads. Maybe we should have a... Um, Maybe we should have a contest. Yeah, let one of the listeners name the group of uh, the following. Yeah, there you go. We have more listeners than you might um, believe by the amount of phone calls oh, yeah, that I, we get here good. on the show. Yeah, you guys. I don't. And I don't know what it is. I wonder if it's in part that um, people just feel like calling into the show is um, mm-hmm. intimidating, or well, I think the uh, subject might might be like. They they want to sound like they um, know something and they maybe think they don't. We even used to have some real loyal callers that Mm -hmm. called in. We haven't (laughs) heard from Marilyn in a long time. I know. She called to tell me that I'm grammatically incorrect (laughs) on our commercial. (laughs) Me and the the staff. you've corrected
4: all of your grammar issues. I doubt that. She doesn't need to. I doubt that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Me and the staff. Yeah.
2: It's something like that, wasn't it? Yeah. Let me and my team. Me or and my team, say. yeah. yeah, yeah. My team and that, I. I thought that was right, though, because if you remove the team, the my team, then you're left with let me show you, right? Uh, huh? See, this is why I make grammatical errors, man. I don't know. I don't know. But, I yeah. do remember, though, just as long as we're <laughs> all, you know, being open and honest with each other here. I remember in school, mm. it happened when I was young, yeah. like, you know, what is it, third or fourth or fifth grade, uh-huh. when they start talking about nouns and pronouns and adverbs, and I remember just thinking, how on earth can anybody remember any of this stuff? And then not doing good on those tests, it just never made sense to me. Yeah. Um, complex, predicate, oh, What? Yeah, I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. So yeah. obviously, later in life, you know, you figure those things out. I know what an adjective is today. Yeah, but it's like, um, those yeah, when you're those are hard concepts when for me. In sixth grade, it's like, um, who cares? But anyway, was like, yeah, when's recess? I want to yeah. go play basketball. <laughs> it was like, yeah, <laughs> this stuff's but, not that fun compared to basketball. Yeah, but but
3: I can I can bet that Marilyn could kind of probably call in and talk about how she enjoys. Pre 1976 property taxes as opposed to her neighbors. Yeah, right. Here in San (laughs) Luis.
2: Yeah. She probably could.
3: Speaking
4: of those high property taxes, there was a um, a report here from the California Association of
2: Realtors and it. CAR. I was talking about NAR a minute ago, the National Association.
4: Um, They came out with some first quarter statistics and. In the state of California, 32% of people can afford the median-priced home, which is just under $500,000. 496,620 is the state median home price number, according to Carr. Um, In the county of San Luis Obispo... Now, is this
2: 32... I know you don't know the answer to this, and I hate when I get this kind of feedback when I'm trying to share stats, too, but is this 32% of, like all people between the ages of 18 and dead i would probably, or is this just a total people
4: i probably and since i'm like married to my wife a home buying age.
2: we're we're two people yeah so and most people of adulthood are married right with marriage marriage rates like 80 something percent i think uh um, something I'm drawing back to like things I remember from my days at Cal Poly. Maybe it was that 80 or 90% of people get married. So I don't know. Anyway, do those people get kind of double dipped married couples, right? Because you're, um, I think it's based
4: f- on, uh, yeah, just, yeah, maybe, maybe cause it's talking about people. It could be,
2: you know, it,
4: Obviously I a, guess, a household only needs one. I guess house. what I'm
2: saying is I worry that they're trying to make a point that less than a third of people can afford to buy the average home. And now I'm like that sounds awfully negative. Um How are you counting to the these. thirds of okay, okay. the pie? I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
4: And I'm, gonna, keep I'm gonna going to finish here. Let me get out of the way. County of San Luis Obispo. 26% of residents could afford the median Even less $550,000 home. Okay. It's because housing's more expensive, or That's is part it part of the reason. Yeah,
2: and because we got a bunch of students here that aren't making any money, so they're going to fall into the category of sure. can't afford.
4: So, in order to make... The monthly payments of approximately twenty eight hundred dollars, which includes taxes and insurance, on a
2: five hundred fifty thousand dollars house,
4: median home price purchase. I assume that's also you know factoring a twenty percent down payment,
2: which um, is only you know one hundred and ten thousand dollars. Only, yeah, one hundred five. Sorry, one hundred five thousand.
4: No, one hundred and ten. But it's, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It to takes save. a
2: long time to save that.
4: So in order, and that's about right. You know how many. Home buyers are you seeing where the payment is about three thousand bucks a month? That seems to be pretty common anymore.
2: Truth be told, I think that that, from what I'm seeing lately, even on the low end. That might be on the low end. And these guys I was talking to yesterday, their comfort payment was at twenty five hundred bucks.
4: So in order to according to this report, afford that payment level, which includes your taxes and your insurance.
2: You've been making nine thousand bucks a month.
4: You need to make hundred and thirteen thousand dollars a year. The good news is our county is not even close to the least affordable in California.
2: Thank the Lord. Yes. Um, real quick, though, going back to the math, <laughs> I do this with people a lot because most of these programs are forty-five or fifty percent debt-to-income ratio. If you have no other payments, okay, you're sitting on your couch right now trying to qualify yourself. Right. If you have no other payments, no card
4: no credit, a card three thousand
2: dollar mortgage is going to need six to seven thousand dollars worth of income to sustain it. Okay, so now when you say that you you t- in order to qualify for that payment you need one hundred and thirteen thousand. I'm like, that's this
4: is going off of the twenty
2: seven percent front end ratio. I want
4: to say thirty one. That's what I remember from the HARP program. Which
2: not enough. I mean, that's the funny thing. The federal guidelines for debt to income ratio suggest you should be twenty seven over thirty one. I'll
4: say this though, those guidelines for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, they go to 45, 50, sometimes a little higher. That's, that's a back-end ratio where they're assuming that you have some consumer debt. This is talking about the front-end housing-only sure. ratio, which puts your housing portion of your debts at 31%, or roughly about that. So that's what this report's saying. They're, they're suggesting that housing is unaffordable if the monthly payment makes up about a third or more of your income. So I guess that's when I, it becomes unaffordable. I guess I'm conditioned. And that allows you some room to have consumer debts.
2: I guess I'm conditioned here in Slow County. When you're a first-time home buyer, um, you most of the time these people are ha- they have a higher debt-to-income ratio than that. So uh, unaffordable? Yes, absolutely. I hear these stories about other parts of the country where those are real numbers, where people are like, "Yeah, twenty percent of my income goes to housing." Well, no wonder you've got, like, like the country song, you got a, a Yeti 110 in your boat, and you're doing all these fun things. You've got a lot of discretionary yeah, income. Right? And here in your town, think about how many people you know that have a boat. If you own a house, it, it's a, like the lion's share of everything you have to keep those balls in sure. the air here. So maybe so. Now, San Francisco was the least
4: affordable area in our state. <sighs> Only 13% of residents could afford a home. Uh, Santa Barbara, San Mateo, Santa Cruz, and Marin were also ahead of us.
2: I read a story yesterday about San Francisco has committed to um, building teacher housing. Oh, really? Yeah, um, because the average teacher salary in San Francisco is $65,000 a year. Um, And you just, I mean, you can't, you can't get a a one bedroom apartment there on that. You're, it's just not going to happen. And so they're going to build teacher housing. And and man, the, um, I guess the negative part of me was like, yeah. And and so how's that feel? You want to be a teacher in San Francisco. Now you get to live in like the teacher barracks.
4: Yeah. A little shoebox of a.
2: Yeah, with all the other teachers, that it's just kind of a constant reminder that you back
4: to college in the dorms or something.
2: I mean, it's almost it's almost like the leper colony. It's like, oh, go back over there with all you teachers that we just we just have a spot for you that because you can't fit into normal society. I mean, and what I mean that that is crisis.
3: Well, the problem I have, like, um, of course, what are you going to say? What about the the janitor barracks, you know, for the yeah, school. Sure, but the, but then but the the one problem Lunch I lady. have is the yeah. the upper end, the upper end where you're paying where you're getting a house for your administrator. You know, I mean, these guys are making a couple hundred grand a year, even here. Yeah, here and, you know, we learned at Cal like,
2: Poly, you can get a fifty thousand dollar moving expense. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's the problem I have. That's I have that's equivalent about. to an entire year's salary yeah. of a San Francisco teacher. Jeez. Yeah. So, I don't I probably know shouldn't that. have said that. That's probably not true, right? That's not true. Mm-hmm. Those are more just allegations of people throwing mud. Yeah. Know. Right? Please <laughs> decline to comment. I've moved a lot of times. It's never cost $50,000. <laughs>
4: are you kidding me?
2: Maybe if you have to. Oh, we knew a guy that moved and had to have a helicopter move uh, um, like a marble a bathtub. bathtub. Yeah,
4: that it, did not cost $50,000, no? believe it or not.
2: Weird yeah it's <laughs> tough to build up that invoice yeah anyway I digress
4: <laughs> what else was there there was a little bit of housing news the housing starts for April I
2: want to go back real quick yeah I want to go back um my guy that I was talking about that I met with yesterday that um we were trying to pre-qualify mm-hmm. true to the the norm, he and his wife qualify for more than they feel comfortable paying. So, um this is where we end up calling it your comfort payment, right? Right. Like I I pre-qualified them and got asked the very specific question, "What's the maximum house that we could qualify for?" $750,000 um with a 10% down payment came out to be like 4,500 bucks a month, basically. And, you know, he's just like, wow, no way. Um, And again, their comfort payment was closer to 2,500 bucks a month, which dropped us down into, you know, basically looking for a $500,000 house that had um, where he could put $100,000 down, which made up 20%. So um, just kind of give you an idea. People generally qualify for even more than they feel comfortable paying.
4: Well, and think about it. These are people who have managed to reduce their consumer debt, so they it affords them this ability to get a higher portion of right. housing debt and still qualify. So these are people that are uncomfortable with, with consumer debt sticking around. Yeah. So it makes sense that they're also uncomfortable with having uh housing payments that feel exorbitant
2: well and they're young married too so i asked them you know because anymore not everybody plans on having kids but i said so you know some of the things to think about here are you guys planning on having kids and understand that whether you drop down to being a single income family or you um incur some daycare <laughs> expenses yeah, pay four grand a month for childcare. Those are things to think about because you're signing up for a 30 year obligation. And that, I mean, think about that. There's not very many things that we do ever that we commit to for 30 years. Um, and life is sure to happen along the way through that 30 year period. So, um, and then at the same time, I also thought it was really refreshing, like you said, to meet a young couple that is debt adverse having a comfort payment that they want to cap at. And, um, you know, unfortunately for me, I, I I wore that hat of being the person that sort of opened your eyes to the the culture shock of what is being able to own a house in Slow County. It's expensive property. By the time you put, and, you know, their pitfall was, he had done a lot of research, did a lot of math, was backing into home values um, based on payment, comfort, uh, but forgot to factor in taxes, insurance, and mortgage insurance, mm-hmm. and those. I mean, on on when you start talking six hundred thousand dollars homes, I mean, taxes, insurance, mortgage insurance can throw another thousand bucks onto the payment. So, um, anyway, it's kind of a, an interesting thing, um, and at the at the same time, as much as one of the points here is that people qualify for more than they feel comfortable buying. At, at the second end of the of the deal here is it's just it's still really telling to me that um, no matter how much Internet research you do or how much self-education you go through trying to figure this thing out, um, coming in to sit down and go through it and figure out like, hey, these are all the parts. And one of the things he left saying was, you know, we've been using like the calculators and stuff on Realtor.com. And I think some of them are accurate, but he said, the real thing that is apparent to me today is that I realized that those were general and these numbers are specific to me. And um, so anyway, we'll see. I I don't know if he ends up buying a house right away or not. The conversation at the end led to, well, what's going to happen to the real estate market? Where do you see it going? Oh, that's tough. Because he probably, he's thinking, he was thinking, I either go save more money down right? So that I can buy the house I want with a greater down payment and keep the payment down. Or I buy a starter level home that I don't really want, but it has the payment that I want. And I'm just thinking, man, the property values feel like a runaway train right now. And I'm not sure I understand how or when that's going to stop given the crazy level of demand on real estate. And so it's kind of anyone's guess, but I gotta believe at least in the short term, it's going up before it's going down. And so if you set out to go save another hundred grand, so when you show back up or all these houses that were six hundred thousand, are they all now seven hundred thousand? And so you saved almost in vain? It's a weird thing to say, huh? How yeah. do you save money in vain? Crazy. All right, back to your data, Dan. <laughs>
4: i was just you know you're talking about demand is out of control and um there's just not look a lot at these out beautiful there. segues we're know, just right? like
2: feeding each other there's Man. Just,
4: there's not a lot of inventory out there and then not to mention that you know for years we've been talking about how millennials aren't interested in buying houses and now all of a sudden that narrative is shifting a little bit that hey maybe maybe millennials are interested in buying housing yeah you know maybe they just finally got old enough to want to buy a house. And that's gonna be a big market um, influence here in the coming years, many years to come. So here we're gonna segue into housing starts which and permits, which is a sign of future housing stock. Um, housing starts were disappointing. They fell 2.6% in April. Um, that was to a little under a 1.2 million annualized rate. Um, the single-family component of that housing starts number was actually up 0.4%. It was the multifamily segment that was down. Um, And then permits for single-family homes were down 4.5% to under 800,000 annualized rate. So, you know what, we've been talking for a while about just the minimum amount of houses that need to be built annually to keep up with population growth. There's been a wide range of numbers, but we're thinking that even at the most conservative, a million homes a year meets demand, meets just population growth. I feel
2: like for me, I've accepted that if you want to be really conservative about it, you got to call it a million. If you want to suggest that that's radically insufficient, some of the numbers at the higher end of the spectrum feel like two million, okay? So think about that, and nationally, of course, these are national numbers, but nationally, we really didn't build houses for 10 years. So depending on where on that spectrum you want to accept the data, our housing economy is missing somewhere between 10 and 20 million homes through that decade where we didn't build. You just mentioned that um, the current starts pace is – over, just, just over 1.1 over 1. Million. 1 million. Yeah. Okay. But the permits is under a million pays. So if nobody had any more babies, we didn't allow any immigration, we didn't lose any homes to age, functional, you know, they, they go through yeah. that economic obsolescence where it's just time to just scrape it, or they burn down, uh, tornado, flooding. There's all these reasons why... Um, population growth and all these other reasons why we need all these homes if none of that happened we didn't lose a single home it's going to take us 20 years to replace the shortage of just what we didn't build but the reality of it is is that all of those things are still happening we have people immigrating we have population size growing we have homes turning out an age where, you know, it's, it's time to be replaced completely. We have homes being destroyed by natural disasters and other, um, types of disasters. So when you add all of that up, what does that mean? I don't see the end in sight here of how you're going to deal with this need. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show, About how California is adopting some new legislature to allow um, accessory dwelling units, those granny flats out back, or whatever you want to term it, the in law quarters above the garage, however it goes. Um, California looking to make this a um, sort of extra dwelling unit by right, (laughs) making sort of force feeding it to the counties and cities around the state. And I believe it's in response to this very issue is that housing is extremely um, expensive here. And we don't have the resources to be able to just go be building millions of homes a year to keep up with everybody that needs one. So it's an interesting thing. I, you know, I, when I look at it that way, I look forward and I wonder, um, Okay, so this demand is gonna stick around. It's not going away anytime soon um, so then what?
4: yeah this is this is the conundrum I feel like D- the supply demand metrics would suggest that you're gonna keep seeing homes appreciate because the demand isn't going away. In but fact, at some point like wages are,
2: are you this is where you started time, 20 yeah. minutes ago
4: yeah housing's zone affordable all over let's I mean I would suggest all over the country, we live in California, let's talk about California, less than a third of people can afford homes here. So as those prices continue to rise, unless incomes change significantly, what happens? I mean, when does the supply demand versus the affordability, where do those lines cross? And at what point do we see housing you know, housing activity slow down simply because of there's no more buyers.
2: So... Not because people don't want houses, but just because they can't afford them. The portrait in my mind shows vacant homes with home buyers, would-be home buyers, that can't afford to buy them. People literally... But we know
4: that's not likely because most builders need to... Recover their costs that they've put into a project. So okay. at some point, you just feel like there's got to be a plateauing of prices because even though there's a lot of demand, we've kind of run out. We've run out of buyers at this price level, so now we just have to we have to stick at this price level to continue to sell homes.
2: Yeah, but at that but at that most that? basic that level, five years from now, and one of the things I mean, this is in here where you you want to talk about the housing crisis. I mean, we're we're scratching into it right now. I'm telling you, I dealing with this here locally now, one of the greatest cities in the world. Okay. I'm dealing with this on a weekly basis where people come into my office. Here's the theme. This is the I could I can almost tell you what they're gonna say before they walk in. It's some variation of this. I rent a home. I've been there for years. Landlord's great. Landlord has told me you know and now we're in may so landlord says that in september when the lease is due he's not going to renew it he's telling me this now he's not going to renew the lease and it's for always for one of two reasons rent's going up no uh. never i mean rent's goes up uh. yes this is not why you need to leave you need to leave because landlord needs back into the house for themselves something in their life has changed This was always their safety net, and it's time to move into this house. It's now the affordable house for them. Or the other most common one is their kids or grandkids, likewise, are being displaced from somewhere else for some other reason or are moving home or something like this, and they need that home for them because the the crunch is tight. They can't find a house. And so, you know, I mean, what would you do if you had tenants, say you've had tenants in a house for five years and your mom is saying, hey, Dan, I'm going to move over to the coast and I can't find a house. I know I'm not going to be able to find a house. And you say, hey, well, I have one. Sure. And I can give my tenants plenty of notice. Okay. So that tenants, the one showing up on my doorstep help the rental market out there is desperate. We were talking with a gal the other day that put a house up for rent in a Tascadero. And she said she got 50 applications on the first day. People that hadn't even seen the home were applying to rent the home. And she's owned this house for a while and said never before had she ever seen it like this, that it's insane. And by the way, she had raised the rent remarkably from where it was. So, You know, that being the case, now what? So some of those people are going to end up needing to leave California at some point. (laughs) The rental properties are going, rents are going up. They're becoming as scarce as um, ever. And now buying a home is expensive and difficult. And by the way, as you were talking about wages and supply and demand and all these things, yeah. We're enjoying the lowest interest rates ever. So what are you going to do about that? Right, that's another payment is one of, is a, it's a it's a three-part factor. How much do you borrow? What's your cost to borrow? And what's your borrowing term? One of those three things has to budge. The government made it illegal to borrow more than 30 years now, so that's out. Sure. The rates are historically lowest they've ever been and we can't control the home prices so I don't really see any hope of lowering payments do you? I don't. What am I not thinking of? How do you make payments lower if you can't change the term, you got the lowest rate ever and the prices are going through the roof? Yeah. You can't. So um something, then what?
4: Something Pe- else creative. If history has taught me anything, something else creative will come along.
2: Forward purchase agreements, <laughs> yeah. selling was... selling your house to a corporation, okay, where they're gonna kick you two hundred thousand dollars today of reduced loan amount for the right to split your future equity with you when you um, sell your house or die, and th- some of those companies like Google and Apple and all these companies that are sitting on gang piles of money are going to end up doing something like that to create affordability
3: i was just talking to these people yesterday that uh they bought property in laughlin oh, and they're, yeah. ha- they're building a house on it they have eleven thousand square foot lot or something uh-huh. like 400 square foot house being built with an rv garage and three bedrooms i think two or three bathrooms anyway um they're expecting to be able to get the property the house built and everything for less than what they're going to be able to sell their house for here in Grover beach. Nice. Yeah. It's just crazy. So they're leaving. Yeah. Their taxes and everything. And they don't mind the heat, which of course, since <laughs> you're going to get heat in Laughlin. Yeah, you are, but they you don't mind. the heat. They actually like the heat. Well, so they don't mind that. So, and like, then
2: they're going to have a boat
3: and then they have an RV garage too, which <laughs> they can pull that RV out of that garage and go somewhere in the summer. Yeah. So they're like, uh, it's just the cost here, and um,
2: even in Grover Beach, so crazy. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. So yeah, I. I guess I started this diatribe by saying, this young couple that I'm talking to yesterday. Do you? What do you do? Do you buy now? I would. You did. I've I mean, seen too. Well, you own.
4: <laughs> I've seen too many people where. They come in and buy entry level housing. Um, you know, I I've seen so many so many young people buy housing. Say, a couple examples I can think of recently in Atascadero under three hundred thousand buy modest homes, and within a couple years they've built up ten. I mean, couple tens of thousands of dollars of equity. You know, forty fifty thousand dollars of equity, and they're going to flip that into a move up home. Something that's in the a... four hundred thousand range that's got a little more space.
2: I proposed a refi yesterday to some clients of ours that bought a home in a Tascadero, a really affordable home, a small older affordable home in a Tascadero, mm-hmm. a year and a half ago for two hundred ninety grand. Guess what it's worth today? A year and a half later. I don't know. These people were rubbing pennies together to buy this house. Four hundred thousand bucks. Three eighty.
4: Yeah. Yep. I. Th- I have friends that are almost identical situation. they yeah. by the they figure by the time they sell their home they're gonna walk away with about seventy grand to put as a down payment on a new home that's got more space.
2: And the other cool thing too, they were rubbing pennies together to buy yeah. this house, but they both got like twenty percent raises too in the last eighteen months. Yes. Yeah, so there's in a good spot. Those are those you know, those are those things that opportunity where just getting your foot in the door um, and making it happen.
4: Yeah, I think the wrong plan is to hold out until you've saved a hundred and ten thousand dollars. Unless you're just waiting pricing. for the
2: next crash, but, in which case, yeah. But when is I that? Mean, when and where is that yeah, coming? We're
4: immersed in this business and we can't decide. You know, when is that going to be? When is there even going to be a plateau of prices? You know, it, it, it's, I don't know. I wouldn't wait around for that. That's I don't see that as a
2: as a reality in the near future. I also like can't help but wonder. You know, at some point. I don't know. Maybe the future of housing is in some kind of a co-op type of thing where you build big multifamily housing and everybody can own, you know, their little like picture a Las Vegas hotel type of building where you get to own your flat, like the co-ops they have back East, right? Maybe that's what the future of housing is to create some of that affordability, but see, you just said the multifamily permits were down. Our, <laughs> we're not gearing up to build those kind of things. So we don't have our arms around that yet. All right. We're about to go to the top of the hour break. Um, I have a loan program to tell you about in the next hour. Cool. Yeah. It'll be fun. Fun discussion. A new loan product. And Dan's going to argue with me on it. So <laughs> it's going to be fun. Guys, we're going to be back in about five minutes with a whole nother hour of Mortgage Matters. Hope you'll stick around. end of it. I notice you're not covering the dump button right yeah. now. <laughs> no, I'm Guess not.
3: You're it's timeless, man. It's a great song. Yeah. With yeah. your smile so warm. We could have used this on Valentine's. Your cheeks so soft yeah. There is nothing I've got
4: one more little bit of news mind. to share. Some good news. Oh. Local, local good news. This morning's paper shared the uh, April unemployment rate for the county it was at 3.3%.
2: That sounds really
4: low, but Dan. That is really low. It hasn't been this low since 2001. May of 2001, 3.3%. And that's where we're at today. Um pretty incredible. Um the, you know, just for comparison, the California Unemployment rates at four and a half percent. The national unemployment rates at four point one percent. Those are all April numbers. And uh, Slow County is tied for sixth best among the fifty-eight counties. And then I have some city breakdowns. Your Atascadero leading town is the lowest.
2: Some hard-working folk in Atascadero.
4: 2.7% unemployment in Atascadero in April. Uh, Arroyo Grande, 2.8%. Wow. San Luis Obispo, 3.5%. Too bad Rebels, 3. slow doesn't 7%. start
2: with an A. It probably could have had a great low <laughs> unemployment rate, too. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. So, Those are really low numbers.
4: Unemployment does not appear to be a problem around here.
2: That article doesn't... Um, Take the next logical leap, though, and start talking about how that's caused an increase in wages, though, does it? It doesn't talk about wages. That's really what I think all of us are just waiting for next. Right. Yeah. Which, you're fully, your city's fully employed. So now if you need to retain or recruit. So
4: now all those employed people that, want to make more money or looking around who's got a better job for me right that's that's what needs to happen and that's
2: or you're going into the boss that's the
4: perfect remedy to the housing like me all those
2: years ago i go into the boss and i say boss you like me right i'm doing a good job right (laughs) low low management here i'm not i'm not causing you stress or problems costing you money in fact i'm adding to the bottom line right I really need to be able to buy a house here for me and my family um, to stay in town. Right, boss? That's reasonable, <laughs> right? Isn't it? I understand there are employees in the company that it's not your your burden to, to make sure they can own a home. But um, San Luis also, our county has a lot of good jobs too. I feel like we bellyache a lot about how there's not enough good jobs. There's a lot of good jobs around here. Maybe not the same level as you could get if you lived in San Jose or something, but there's a lot of good jobs around here. Anyway, we'll look forward to those increasing wage reports, Dan. You'll bring those next week? Yeah, I hope so. Let us know about all the wages that are going up everywhere <laughs> as the wages are finally catching up. We'll see. Hey, so as threatened, I wanted to tell you about this. Um, I was a little bit, I was a little bit bothered by myself. I called this a new loan program.
4: It's actually been around. It's for not a
2: new loan program. A little
4: over ten years.
2: In other countries, it's been around for a lot longer. Yeah, I saw. Um, all right, so I'm going to cut to the chase. I want to tell you what this is right out of the gate. Um, it's a first lean heloc. Okay, and HELOC uh, is a home equity line of credit. So what happens is this is a loan where you have a line of credit mortgage in your first lien. It's being marketed today as the all-in-one loan, which, you know, that's that's a cool name.
4: That's because it does more than just a typical HELOC.
2: That's right. Um, It's very different, I gotta say. Gosh, and it makes me want to talk a little bit about HELOCs, too, just so that we can compare and contrast these things. So I think real real basically, I'll tell you, the home equity line of credit, generally the way that this functions is there's a draw period, which is typically the first 10 years of the loan. And during that first 10 years, your required payment is interest only, um, and you... Typically you make a payment every month. If there's a balance, whatever the interest is, you're required to pay it in month 121. You lose the ability to draw it. So in other words, in that first 10 years, say I charge a hundred thousand dollars on it over time, whatever I pay it back. I'm in year seven. I'm down to no, I don't owe any, anything. Um, year eight, I run it back up a little bit. Year nine, I pay it back down year 10. Um, it's zero at that point. It's basically a closed loan. It doesn't do anything for you going forward. Um, if you have a balance on it at the end of the 10th year, it shifts into what we call the fully amortized portion. So for the remainder of the loan, which could be 10, 15, or 20 years, the ones 20 that we is most offer. common.
4: Yeah, the one that we offer is 20-year amortization period.
2: Now you're going to pay back over that 20-year period. So one... 240th of the principal is due every month plus the interest. You will pay it off in 20 years. Still adjustable, typically. Um, This loan is drawable for the whole 30 years. That's an important difference to mention right away because this is a first lien HELOC. I don't want to get away from that ever. I, I, I feel like some of the marketing kind of tries to shroud that a little bit. Um, this is a first lien heloc, but it's drawable for the entire thirty years. In years eleven through thirty, the available line of credit is diminishing by one two hundred fortieth per month. Right, so as long as you're under that, as it as it sort of ticks down, when you hit year thirty, it's paid in full. But if you're ahead of it, like let's say I'm on year twenty five and I've already paid it off. I could draw it again on year twenty-five, and I'm going to be able to to pay it back over the next five years until it's paid off. Um, so that's a first of all a huge functional difference between a normal, you know, traditional line of credit versus this one, um, the first lien HELOC. That uh, and and here's the scoop. This is what this is why this loan um, is being talked about and getting legs is the company that's really marketing it and um, that we're able to sell it through suggests that for some people this is a um, a way to refinance the mortgage you have today and take advantage of a loan where they believe you could save some serious money. And I feel like I um, I've been through all the training. I've been through... Uh, the calculators, I've spent some time really getting in the weeds on how this thing works. And I understand it pretty well. And I want to say that uh, this loan is not right for everybody. It's clearly not. But here's the deal. This is this is how it's being marketed. With a traditional mortgage, with your $300,000 30-year fix that you have today, uh, we pay the mortgage payment starting in month one, we pay it for 360 months. It takes about 15 years before the majority of your payment is going towards principal. So you're paying a lot of interest in the in the first part of the loan. In fact, in the first five years of a traditional mortgage, you're paying 25% of the interest over the whole um, loan, you're paying it's front loaded into the first five years because it's simple interest, but your balance is the biggest. And you're just basically serving that those interest payments every month are taking the lion's share of your payment. A little bit of a hamster wheel takes a long time before you start to get traction and really can make significant headway on the principal part of the mortgage. On this loan, what you're doing is You take your paycheck in full, so it becomes sort of your primary bank too. Um, Say your paycheck is $10,000 a month, you put the $10,000 a month right into the loan. So start out with your $300,000 loan. On a traditional mortgage, your first month's payment, you're gonna be probably getting $300 of principal reduction, and then the interest calculates, right? On this loan, it's gonna be day one, if you put your $10,000 deposit in there, your payroll deposit, now your balance of your mortgage is two ninety.
4: So I think you you rushed over to this part. What makes this line of credit very unique is that it, it's also tied to a bank account. Right. If you so choose. You don't have to do this. But if you choose, you can make this um, tied to... Uh, th- this would be your primary bank account, your savings account, rather than having... You know, a savings in another account where you're earning 0. .0001 interest, you can have that money in this account reducing your loan balance that you owe. Right. So it's kind of like home equity and savings all in one account that you have access to the entire term of this loan.
2: Yeah, and, uh, for the most part, I think, I, and I would venture to say that most of the homeowners that I look at and, and talk to, they've got... Um, kind of what I'll call their their nominal savings, you know. They've got they've got an account where you got 5 10 15 20,000 bucks and it's not Safety that's not though. your big big savings. That's just like the savings you have for, you know, if the motor blows up in the car or whatever, right? Or you need to re-roof the house or something. It's this isn't your retirement account. This isn't any of those other accounts that are really specifically earmarked. This is like, I'm able to save 500 bucks at the end of the month for my expenses. And I just transfer it from the checking into the savings. And I, it's my goal to grow it. I'd love to grow it by 6,000 bucks a year, but I'm, I'm just what I can. I save. Um, a lot of people have those and I'd venture to say on average, it's, it's somewhere around 10 or 15,000 bucks. So on a loan like this, you would just go ahead and take that money and throw it into the mortgage, right? Day one, you reduce the principal now by the five, 10, 15,000 bucks, whatever it is you have. So now you're just paying less interest. The awesome thing is, um, you have access to that right away. Um, if you need it you can use a check or a debit card or whatever to get it right back out so it's a way that you can use it to greatly reduce the interest cost in your life without losing access to that money because for those of you that do have 15 or thirty thousand bucks in an account that's really just sitting there you're not willing to put it into the stock market this is not stock market money this isn't 401k money this is that savings money you don't just want to send it to your mortgage because if then I send it, to somebody, it it's gone out. forever. Yeah. And you still have the higher payment <laughs> because right. it's it's an installment debt. So you pay the principal down radically. Well, now the years you owe the mortgage goes down, but your payment's still going to be whatever it was yesterday.
4: And then so. the other cool feature is that it, it will accept direct deposit from your employer. Right. So then that's where you can have your paycheck direct deposited into this account in addition to it holding that savings. So money. let's
2: so let's say your paycheck, you know, is 10,000 bucks a month. So you put it into your usually what we do is we put it into our checking account, put it into our savings, a little bit into our savings account, and then we pay our bills, right? Biggest bill, mortgage. Yeah, you know, pay that thing on the 1st. Pay it on the 5th, pay it on the 15th, whenever you pay it. Um, but you pay that's a big chunk of money. Now, the other bills, these are my health care, my utilities, um, throughout the month, I'm gonna spend, you know, like in my household, we spend about four hundred dollars a week on food. So that every week I know that's coming and it's in the bank account. I'm gonna I'm gonna know that it's going out, you know, this one on the seventh, this one on the fourteenth, this one on the twenty first. Um, then there's gas. Again, it happens every week, right? We use the debit card, whatever. So on this loan, what we're suggesting is you put your entire paycheck into the mortgage, and you reduce your interest cost the day that it gets deposited. And now, when you need groceries, you just use that debit card, which grows it back up a little bit. When you get gas, you use that debit card; balance goes up a little bit, and you're sort of inching back towards, um, you know, using the money like you would have. But those utilities that you're paying on the on the twenty fifth, and the gas that you're buying on the twenty eighth, and all those things. You use that money by throwing it into the mortgage. Is This interest is calculated daily. So any day that those extra few thousand bucks is sitting in there reducing that interest cost, now when it comes out later in the month, you've reduced your average interest cost. Does that sound interesting? I mean, I think it sounds interesting. I mean, it makes Um, a
4: lot of sense because over the course of a 30-day month, you will have paid less interest, or you will owe less interest than if you let the interest just accrue on the principal balance over the 30 days, and then on day one of the following month, you pay that previous month's interest. That's the way a typical amortized mortgage works.
2: On this one, the all-in-one loan, on the 20th day of the next month, the interest has been calculated daily, but it's paid on the 20th day of the next month. So whatever it turns out to be, and then that gets debited, just like any other swipe might be. So you're not actually cutting a check for the mortgage payment, nor are you um, writing a principal check, right? You're just, it's 800 bucks of interest being assessed right there. It's an
4: interest-only payment. It's a HELOC.
2: So I want to circle back. I want to say this several times during this conversation. This is a loan that's not for everybody. Um, and if you're listening right now, I want you to, to, to hear this point. This loan is not for everybody, but I'd like to tell you about some people that I think it could be pretty awesome for. Um, so let's say you get that $10,000 paycheck and you throw it in there and you use back $6,000 worth of the money over the month, you know, pay the gas, pay the groceries, pay the utilities, pay the, the veterinarian, you pay all your bills at the end of the month. You're like $4,000 ahead. That money's not dead and gone or unaccessible. It just means you start the next month out with $400,000 less principal. So now you're paying less interest. So you throw the paycheck in there again, rinse and repeat. Do this over time. um, You can save a lot of money. Um, Here's, I want to tell you about some people that I do think that that if you're listening, maybe um, there's some people here that are going to hear this and say, wait, that's me. That could solve some problems for me um first most obvious person I want to talk about real estate agents um maybe loan officers too. Paychecks are infrequent you know if you work for the state you get your paycheck on the first you're a pretty good budgeter the paycheck doesn't really change much you don't have commission and overtime and bonuses you get to learn how to live within your means. the check comes you just do your thing when you're a real estate agent, you might end up with um, no commission at all in the month of June. Mortgage, if you have a normal mortgage, it's still due, by the way. So you better have some savings. Um, you may not end up having a commission check in July either. So now you're eating into the savings a little bit more. By the way, the savings that's earning nothing that you're taking then to go pay the mortgage. Now, here we go. August sold that Lunker listing you had down in Shell Beach for $2 bucks and commission for you is going to be 60-something thousand bucks. Awesome deal. Take that money. If you're in this kind of loan, take the whole 60,000 bucks and throw it right into the mortgage. So now what happens? September, I have no commission. Guess what? I'm not making a mortgage payment either. The interest sort of gets added on there, eats a little bit of the $60,000 away. I'm still managing my money. I'm not doing anything different. It's almost like a reverse mortgage in that way, that you're not necessarily having to write a
4: mortgage payment check each month, it's just coming out of as long the as available you're, credit. As long
2: as you're ahead of the amortization, yeah. then you're not required to write a check. So if you are in some sort of profession where there's volatile income, one month it might be zero or 5,000 bucks, another month it might be zero or 50,000 bucks. You know the other person I was thinking of that this is a pretty good deal for? How about, how about a builder? I'm going to build the house for you, right? You hire me to build your house. I'm going to build it over this 10-month period. And I have some expenses along the way that I'm going to be expected to pay. But at the end of the day, when, I, when we finish your house and you pay me the rest of the money, now I have this, like, windfall income that happens right out of the gate. And um, those people have unique ways of managing money. They know how to do it. Sometimes they live on credit cards. They do a bunch of weird stuff. But again, most of us have a mortgage. And if you could throw those big chunks of money into the home loan, reduce your greatest expense, which is your mortgage, um, while you're working towards that end goal of paying it off. Um, There's some really cool calculators, by the way, um, that I could use if somebody's like, well, I'm yeah, I'm interested to know if I am the kind of person that might benefit from this. Then, obviously, there's a little bit more to talk about. Get into the calculators, kind of figure it out. See, uh, in the calculators, they're really cool. You do the proposed loan, what we, this is called the all-in-one loan, this first lien HELOC. And then um, you do your existing loan, right? So this tells us how much you owe, what your interest rate is, what your payment is. Um, it's but it's pretty impressive when you get down to it. So fundamentally, the all-in-one loan is different than a mortgage because your deposit of your paycheck or your savings whatever it is that you're putting in there is going to the principal first. Traditional mortgages go to interest first. So you're you're what you're doing is right out of the gate you're you're slanting the table in your favor a little bit to be paying less interest over the life of this loan because you're just approaching it from a different standpoint. Um, When you reduce the principal balance first, you reduce the interest cost dramatically. Yeah. You use the money back over the course of the month. So it it sort of chips away. Your greatest savings is going to be in those week or two after you get paid. Once you use more and more of it, it starts to go away a little bit, but you're on your traditional mortgage. You're getting none of that benefit. You're writing a check Very little of it goes to principal, lion's share of it goes to interest. You got 15 years before the majority of your payment is going towards principal. So this can change something pretty dramatically there for those people. The other thing too, I mean, we talked about this a couple times, but the interesting thing is would you throw some of your savings or some of that other little bit of money into your mortgage to reduce your interest costs tomorrow if you knew you could get it back on monday if you needed it sure you probably would we don't do that we don't even think about that because we know with our normal mortgage if we write a check to the mortgage company it's in there and it's in there until we sell the house or refinance to get it back out it's gone i've lost access to it so this is something where it could even change your mindset now about oh look i got i got a tax refund of 9000 bucks what do you do with your tax refund Some people plan a Hawaiian vacation. Some people want a new big screen TV or to remodel the backyard or something, right? Um, Some people don't really have a plan for it. Some people just save it. Throw it at the mortgage. There you go. Because now in three or six or nine months, if a need arises, you're not kicking yourself going, man, I wish I didn't pay down my loan. Well, guess what? If you take it out nine months later... You just enjoyed 9 months of saving interest that you otherwise would have paid just because you parked it there for a while while you waited to see what happened. That I I'm going to argue that that is going to create kind of a rewiring of of the way you think about your mortgage. When you start going, "Hey, grandma sent me 150 bucks for my birthday." Cool. Throw it in the mortgage. Why not? I'm not, I don't need to race right out and spend it. That's money that otherwise you would throw into your non-interest bearing checking account. Um, another thing that I, that I just want to say about this, um, a couple of other things. First of all, oh yeah. 10 30 break time. Jim, did I lull you to sleep with this talk? Not really. All I'm right. awake. Let, yeah, let's go ahead and do a break. We didn't do the last break of the second of the first yeah. hour either, so yeah. we let's should do this one. break. I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, the terms of the loan because it's it's not a fixed rate loan. It's an actually an adjustable rate loan. There are some things you need to know about it too. So let's go ahead and do a commercial break. When we get back, uh, we'll have more mortgage matters. Hi, this is Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. There's a common myth that home buyers need to save a 20% down payment to buy a home. The fact is, we offer numerous zero-down and low-down payment loan programs. Before you meet with a realtor, step one is to get pre-approved.
1: Just call 543 loan. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing lender. California BRE number 01839608. California DBO number 6054783. NMLS number 328358.
4: We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending.
5: You're tuned in to Mortgage
0: Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show.
3: The greatest city in the whole world. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it, New York, New York. These vagabonds.
4: All right, welcome back.
3: It's Mortgage Matters.
4: Appreciate you listening on this beautiful day. We've been talking about a new New and very unique loan program, um, which I just want to quickly summarize for you in case you missed any part of the the last. 20 or so minutes Um, this is the all in one loan program and it's called the all in one loan program because it does so many things it combines so many of the financial services that you use today it's your checking account you can pay bills from it using online bill pay or using a debit card Um, you can have your paycheck direct deposited into this account so it acts as a checking account it can also be a savings account rather than have money stashed away in a low or no interest bearing savings account at a traditional bank. You can still maintain access to that money, but have it reduce your principal balance while it just sits in an account and you're not doing anything with it. And so in that way, you're, you're saving interest. You're not making interest; you're saving interest, so you're reducing an expense. So it acts as a savings account for you as well, and you still have access to that money. It's a credit card; it's a revolving line of credit. Um, you have a debit card; you can write checks against it. However, you want to spend that money, whatever form you like to spend in, um, it it has that feature and it revolves like a credit card or like a line of you know a home equity line of credit. It's tied to your home equity. Um, it's your mortgage. You know, it's it's covering the balance you owe on your home, your biggest asset. It um, The payments, if you're ahead of the amortization schedule, it gets paid like a reverse mortgage. You're not necessarily writing a check for your mortgage every month, it's just added to your principal balance. It's taken out of that equity that you've built up. Um, so it does so many different things and that's why it's called that all-in-one mortgage. But we were gonna segue here and talk about the terms because this isn't like a like a fixed-rate mortgage. This is an adjustable line of credit.
2: Yeah, that's right. It is an adjustable line of credit. It's a first lien HELOC. And so the way that it works is it's it adjusts monthly. In California, there actually is an option to fix the adjustment for a three-year period where it won't adjust for three years. Uh, but for most people, they're going to choose the one-month LIBOR plus a margin. And... The margin on these things is uh, between three and a quarter, three and a half, or three and three quarters. You're picking one of those.
4: I want to pause right here. This is another thing. This is another feature that makes it different from a traditional home equity line of credit, which is usually tied to prime.
2: Almost always.
4: Home equity lines of credit in second position and generally in any position on your home are generally tied to prime, which prime today is 4%. I will say that you typically get a lower margin, although that depends on your credit score and loan-to-value and things like that, but um, this one is tied to LIBOR, which LIBOR today is below 1%, the one-month LIBOR. You can check it at the Wall Street Journal.
2: So one-month LIBOR plus a margin of something in the 3% range, okay? And what happens is it's got caps, which... This is another important differentiation between this and a standard HELOC. When I used to do HELOCs at Countrywide, you always sort of see people cringe a little bit where it says that the maximum um, that your line of credit could adjust to is like (laughs) 24.99%. Wow, that's crazy high. Um, These things uh, are a cap of 6% over the start rate. So depending on where you get into it, right now, if you got into one today... The interest rate cap, the highest it could ever go, is to 10.232. That being said, that's really high. You hope that never happens. But it's still
4: not as high as a traditional home equity line of credit. The second position home equity line of credit we offer has an 18% cap.
2: And And that's pretty typical. And these also have a floor, which is 3.75. So even if LIBOR went to zero, um, if you had a 3.25 margin, you're not getting an interest rate below 3.75. Uh so that being said um to to kind of recap too the rest of the structure of this deal is that it adjusts every month so you're paying interest based on whatever the 1 month libor changes to each month um interest is calculated daily but charged monthly just like most uh lines of credit you can draw you have access to the money for the full 30 years which is absolutely unique It's very easy to access the money, uh, by way of a, you know, basically a debit card or a check. Um, you can even wire off of it and things like that this is a normal, you know, bank account type of, uh, access to money loan amounts up to 2 million bucks and really an 80% loan to value. So you got to have some equity in your house to get it. But, um, it's an interesting idea. And again, I said I was going to say this several times. I want to say it again now. This is not a loan for everybody. I think this is a great loan for people that, um, you know, like I, I get these loans for these people. They both work at Amazon. Husband and wife work at Amazon. Income's $20,000 a month. They're in to borrow $600,000. bucks. 30 year fixed sets you up in a place where paying a lot of interest if you send extra money into the mortgage, it's kind of locked in there unless you sell the house or refinance it. You do something like this, you could radically reduce your interest cost, rapidly accelerate the rate you're paying off your home, save yourself tons of money and interest, and have access to that money every day. That's really um, the kind of person I think this loan is geared for. Uh, and you know, one of the things I jotted down in the notes that I wanted to say is that, you know, the, one of the parts of the sales pitch of this thing that I thought was really telling was, um, what you're doing here, I mean, we've said more than once how this is so different than a, than your typical mortgage, but here you're using your largest asset, which is your income to offset. Your largest liability, which is your mortgage, and you're doing it in a way that can slant the the table in your favor. If you get into the math and figure this thing out, um, it it really can be a fun deal to go analyze. I analyzed myself on it yesterday, just to you know, in preparation for the show, um, kind of trying to see how much sense it made. Um, you can save. Some interest. It's a pretty compelling thing, uh, you know. That being said, again, it's not for everybody. It's something where um, what I'm hoping is, if anybody was listening, uh, looking for an idea of some other way to manage this thing, that I think those people that have variation in cash flow, where you get big quarterly bonuses or you get, um, you know, commission based income that comes very sporadically this can be a way to help you put any savings any of those things to work the best you can um, and really reduce your own costs said in the beginning this isn't a new loan um, this is a really popular loan I, I jotted down um, England Canada and Australia, this is a really common loan. They don't even have to market it that much. There's a lot of it's been working for a long time. There's a lot of people that know about it, understand the strength of it. Um, Devil's advocate, if this is such a great loan, how come everybody doesn't have one? Well, number one, it's not for everybody. Number two, I don't think most banks are wanting you to have this loan, you know? Think about that, like big banks, Wells Fargo. Who are the top account holders in the you know asset of depository funds? You got it's all
4: the big ones: yeah. B of A, Wells Fargo, Chase, U.S. Bank,
2: City. Yeah, they use your deposits to do their business. They're they want you to put your deposits in. Especially save your money into little savings accounts and money market accounts. Put your money into CDs. Give them access to your money. They use this money to run their businesses. When you do one of these all-in-one all in, lo- all in one loans, you're not throwing deposits into the bank that are just sitting there. You're having your paycheck deposited into your mortgage. It's reducing the balance of your mortgage. And then you use it back over time. This is basically earmarking your money for you. <laughs> this is you using your money for you. Not the bank using your money for them and charging or paying some fee based on that. This is you using your money for you. Um, so something new, you know, something a little bit different. Something where, for again, for certain people, this could be a really powerful tool And one more tool in the quiver for us. You know, when we're sitting down with people, um, really savvy borrowers that are, that are looking for something different or have some ability to do something. One of the other examples I saw too was somebody that, um, you know, keeps a few hundred thousand dollars on hand for their business. If you're a sole proprietor of your business, there's, you know, even the training that I went through said, um. Make sure you contact your tax professional. Make sure you're not going to get yourself in any trouble. But there's cases where it's okay to kind of co-mingle that. Just take the $300,000 that you you typically are using in your business for inventories or whatever. Pay your loan down on your mortgage and use it like that as you need to. Um, They don't care how you use the money in terms of the mortgage. And most of the time, if you're a small business owner... Um, your house is <laughs> listed as collateral on your SBA loan anyway. So you're all, it, it's all sort of intertwined and connected anyhow. So um, you may as well figure out if there's an opportunity here for you to to radically reduce what you're paying in interest.
4: So a couple thoughts here, this, like you said, this is not a loan program for everyone. It's not for a first time home buyer. This is not a loan program for someone who's living paycheck to paycheck. Um, this is for someone who's got residual income. You know, you mentioned a few examples where maybe the income isn't consistent every month, but when it comes, it comes in in big waves. What
2: if so. you're 60 and you're ready to retire and your house is paid off, but you know you're not going to be able to qualify for a loan for the next 30 years? You can access this thing for the whole 30 years. So what if you open it? Don't even draw it. And now you're sitting on a line of credit that's accessible for you for a 30-year period if you won't ever need it.
4: thats I think that's the most realistic. In my opinion, the most realistic use of this loan is as a traditional first lien line of credit. I think the banking features and stuff... I get it. I I get the opportunity to save interest cost if you carry a balance on on the mortgage and stuff like that. But there's some part of me that's like, you know, I I'm uncomfortable not having this bank branch here in town. You sure. Know, I I don't. This is not the a the millennials
2: bank. are willing yeah. to bank entirely online. True. Um, See, it's because you're old.
4: So I don't know. That that's one part of it. I feel like you know I've got some. Checking and savings accounts at Heritage Oaks Bank, and that's just you know, I know where they are. They're they're on Morro Bay Boulevard. They're on, you know, I I know the locations around the county where I can find them
2: and find my. By money. the way, <laughs> all of the deposits because it's a the all in one bank loan here. There it is all FDIC insured. Yep, yeah, it is it is so so
4: i so you like I, that
2: old school comfort of yeah. knowing at least having an idea that your money's in the vault there at the bank sure earning nothing
4: <laughs> well here's the thing
2: so you've described a bunch
4: of people who this could potentially be a good loan product for you know one one segment i mean you're a lot of the people that you're describing are higher Earner, higher net worth type of people, yes. where maybe they need access. You know, they they have money. They in the use bank, money differently, but they want to have access to it too. But at the same time, if you can just use that to reduce another expense, why not do that? Yeah, that's a great idea. But there's other tools for those people too. Oh, if someone's got that much much residual income every month, they could greatly reduce their mortgage interest cost by doing a 15 year loan as opposed to a 30.
2: Um, But they still don't have access to their money if they need it.
4: Correct. But if the point of the loan is to reduce interest cost, because that's ultimately what it is, yeah, you can park your savings or your paycheck or whatever into this account and reduce your interest cost, but still have access to it. The whole point is about reducing interest cost. You can do that through a 15-year loan or a 10-year loan. So... A lot of the training of this program is about comparing it to a 30-year amortized loan because that's by far the most common loan. It's like 86% of mortgages are the 30-year fixed mortgage. Correct. So that's what, in the marketing, this loan is comparing to is a 30-year fixed mortgage. But what about how does it compare to a 15-year fixed mortgage? You can do that in the simulators, too. Uh, That would Um, be very interesting because I know that... I mean, it was quite compelling with a 30-year fixed mortgage. A 30-year fixed mortgage, using the example of a $300,000 loan, 4% amortized over 30 years, you know how much you end up paying? It's like $515,000. It ends up being 71% of the payments you make are interest.
2: That's right.
4: Or, no, uh, it's 70, you're paying 71% interest of yeah, the principal that you Over borrow. the life of it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, and that's another point that they made more than once in this program training was that then the rub is that we don't even have loans for 15, 16, 20, 30 years. We tend to have loans for five to seven years. Sure. And during those periods, we're paying almost purely interest. So. The fact is that we get thirty-year loans. We use them for a very short period, and that exacerbates the problem of the cost to those people. Uh, I want to circle back, Dan. You said that this is for people that have, um, you know, basically have some wealth and maybe some savvy uh, financially that are looking to do something a little bit different with their with their assets. That's exactly right. Um, it, it is, it's for somebody that's got something kind of unique going on and have some money to throw at something, but also have a need or really a great understanding of the significance of having access to it. So... There are some people that this loan makes a lot of sense for. When you said, too, that you like to see how it compares those other loans, we can compare it in the calculators, and you can tell in the calculator whether or not it makes sense for you. That's another cool thing. You don't, you don't need to just make an emotional decision. You can make uh, a, a decision based on um, the actual math of it. You actually put in your income. And then you, you do, you put in like a savings rate too. So, you know, if you make $10,000 a month, how much of that are you saving? If the answer is zero, this loan is not good for you. In fact, from what I could see, if the answer is 10% or less, this loan is not good for you. If you're saving an average, you know, between your savings goals, if you're able to save 20% or more of your gross income, this loan starts to get compelling for you, so that's where I think it's for those high earners that have, you know, income assets, an ability to use money a little bit differently. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, this is not the loan for you. Your your head down in the calculators. What are you figuring out? Well, I'm trying to go through it and compare it to a 15 year. Yeah, how's it going? Um, it's
4: requiring. More thought than I can dedicate while I'm also trying to talk on the radio. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I usually find that to be the case.
3: Dan's usually really well prepared with uh, articles. So you have the you have the cutouts over there, actually.
4: Oh yeah, I've gone Maybe, through these. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I'm curious to see how this compares here. Interesting.
3: We need some jeopardy music or something.
4: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay. So I compared a 15-year at 3.5% interest rate. Conservatively high. $300,000. I like it. I was, yeah, ballparking it here. I like it. And it, it, you do save some money here. It's showing a savings.
2: What did you put in for parameters of, like, income and, and savings-wise? Am I
4: doing this right?
2: 10000 bucks a month or something?
4: Um, I don't know. See that's where I rushed through. I need to spend more time. I can't really do this on the fly like this. I think what it's showing me is that it didn't save me money, but I also didn't factor in savings and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, you have to have savings that's for it to problem. yeah. So if you if you again if you've I got was using discretionary a conservative income.
4: income as well, you know, I was using like a $6,000 a month income. Have you been
2: listening to me? Yeah, I told no, I know, you who this is good for. I was for.
4: trying to use a realistic scenario just to see what, like, the average everyday Joe might find, the you know, whether they would find this to be the thing. And I, I think not. I just proved that it's not.
2: It's not for the and average so I'd person. I'd like
4: to go back through and do it on a higher net worth type of situation here. But I can't do that right now because it, it does require a little bit of
2: I'll I'll give you a window in next week's segment here where you can report back with your findings. Okay.
3: Dan's got homework for next week's show.
4: It's interesting. It's a very interesting loan product. And it's it, you know, we're lacking in those right now, which is probably good to some extent. You know,
2: well, Dan, (laughs) earlier in the show when we were talking about the kind of three variables about home loans how much you borrow, the rate at which you borrow, and the term that you borrow. This is what, this is the home affordability. This is what it costs to buy. When you look at this loan program, this is one of the interesting things about it is like, okay, so you need new inventive loan programs to come to market and change the way people think about their house. Well, this may not be the the one size fits all, um, you know, silver bullet fix to this problem. However, this is a different way to look at home ownership, too, is using a vehicle, because you can use this loan to buy a house. Mm -hmm. So you got, um, during the break, you were telling us about a friend of yours that's an executive chef makes $70,000 a year here in the county. That's awesome. I mean, for a chef, sounds good. Um, If you're married and you're, say, your, your wife is doing the same, Okay. So you make $140,000 a year, combined household income. We know statistically that's kind of something special. How about that person? You know, what would they be doing otherwise? Well, they'd be paying their mortgage, which the lion's share of that is going to interest for a long time. And they'd be trying to meet savings goals and keep all the other, you know, utilities and everything paid. That person. Put your numbers into the calculator. Your income is almost twelve thousand dollars a month. What happens there? You buy a four hundred thousand dollar house. You make twelve grand a month. The mortgage payment should only be three. You're actually depositing eight or nine thousand dollars a month. And chipping back away at it, you put those numbers into the calculators, you see some stuff changing there. Sure. So again, this is not for the average Joe. This is not for the guy, you know, that's got household income of six thousand bucks a month. It's not. You're not going to find something compelling there. But think about the whole spectrum of people. You know, I and, I I know somebody that's really wealthy lives in a four and a half million dollar house on the coast. Bunch of money in the stock market, retired money in the stock market, money in the bond market, money all over the place. Don't want to be selling those on a weekly basis for money. Doesn't have a pension. Social Security is insufficient to keep up with lifestyle. So what you do, you have a first lien HELOC, grow this thing, right? When it hits 100000 bucks, then you sell $100,000 worth of stock at the end of the year. Boom. Wipe out the $100,000. Now you left that money in the market earning 11, 15, 20%. I don't know. However you're invested, what are you making? But point being, then you had this first lien HELOC over here where you were paying interest as you borrowed, calculated daily at a variable rate, which today is at like 4.5%. As long as you're out earning that, that's better than selling your assets or having a normal mortgage. A couple quick
4: details that I don't know that we mentioned. Loan amount on this product will go up to $2 million. Yep and the loan to value ratio maximum is 80%. Yeah.
2: Anyway, it can it's be a, a good loan for people. It's an interesting people. product. I to... think it's really just one like and I'm always telling people what you get when you come see me is a comprehensive approach where we can look at all the programs. You know, when you want to get pre-approved with me, I'm going to look at, you know, are you a veteran? Do you qualify for USDA? Can we do FHA? Is a conventional loan the best for you? Do you want to visit a 15-year loan? You qualify for it. What about this other loan? You know, these are things where um, I, I don't. I think historically, loan officers don't approach. These conversations the same way well, because you, you kind of come saying what you want.
4: You certainly don't get these options when you go to an online mortgage either.
2: No, nor are you going to get the thoughtful counsel where we sit down with calculators and figure out what the very best thing is for you. What your what are your circumstances? What are your objectives? What are your goals? You know, if you sit down in my chair and I see that you have $100,000 in a checking account, you make fifteen grand a month, you got a $400,000 mortgage and your debt-to-income ratio is 8%, uh, we might actually want to talk about this loan. You might be the perfect candidate for a loan like this. Um, you know, and so it's, it's just one of those things like loan officers... Aren't always well versed in in how to talk about the way products work. Because we all know how a 30 year fix works with no prepay. <laughs> it's sure. It just works. You just pay it. You don't so you don't there's not a lot of focus. Now when people get to that part on the truth and lending statement where they see, Hey, how come the total of all payments is eight hundred grand? I'm only borrowing three ninety. Wow, that's a beauty of borrowing large amount of money over a long time, even at a really low rate. So, uh, anyway, if you guys want to talk about this, if there's somebody that wants help kind of going through the calculators and determining if you might be the kind of person that this loan would work for, you can uh, give us a call. One number rings all of the offices, um, five, four, three loan, which is five, four, three, five, six, two, six. Additionally, you can go over to the website. Um, we're going to need to add a little bit of information about this loan to the website. We haven't done it yet. Um, It's not new. I mean, it's not new to us. We got pitched this loan first eight, Mm. nine years ago. Um, It's certainly not new, but maybe it's becoming more relevant uh, as, you know, there's people that it just might work for. So um, anyway, you can go over to the website, learn about the products and programs that we do have. Check out interest rate stuff. There's cool things on there that we blog about. Um, You could also fill out a loan application if you're interested in it. Uh, read the bios about some of the loan officers, get to know us a little bit. Um, we're here to help. If you guys have any kind of lending needs or, you know, sometimes you just need to get a checkup, see if you're in the right loan, see if you're doing the right things, um, see if, you're, if your rate's appropriate, those kind of things, reach out to us at 543-LOAN. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back next week with another episode. Have a great week, you guys.